great to be with you. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to be looking mostly at that passage in Luke chapter 4. So if you have a pew Bible or your Bible or um, a Bible app on the phone, open up to Luke 4.14. Several years ago, I heard about this weekly gathering that takes place for atheists. It's called Sunday Assembly. And it started in London. There were, uh, and now there, there are, uh, there's one in dozens of major cities all over the world. And at Sunday Assembly, they do really all the important things. They have corporate singing. They hear from a talented and inspiring speaker, just like you are hearing today. <laughs> there's always a time for fellowship over tea and cake or coffee and donuts if it's in America. And the mission statement for Sunday Assembly is pithy and positive. It's live better, help often, wonder more. Marketing expert would tell you those active verbs, right, are really important there. And it was started by two friends who uh, were comedians, and they were talking, and they said, we're really hungry for something a lot like church, but totally secular. They want community, but without all the baggage that comes along with God. And it sounds kind of nice, right? I mean, I, I think it's easy as, for me as a Christian to, to criticize this, but maybe I should look at this and say, okay, they're finding community for community's sake. There's something good going on here. And, and that's true in a sense. But the reality is that while community is a great good, it's also dangerous. In fact, it can become demonic. Uh, the French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre famously said, Hell is other people. Sure seems like he was right sometimes. The long history of humanity has really proven that so-called community is often something that devolves into tribalism and scapegoating and even violence. Uh, to see what I'm talking about, you only need to kind of go observe a high school lunchroom or... Uh, everyone laughs at that because it's true. Uh, or or turn on your Twitter feed, or turn on cable news and see uh, what goes on in the political discourse in this country. And for a, a really extreme example, look at the history of early 20th century Germany. It was a long, passionate quest for Gemeinschaft, community. And it was that passionate quest that led to Auschwitz and Nuremberg. With all that said, we have to have community. It's not possible to get away from it. And the question facing us is, can, is there a type of community that is life-giving rather than death-dealing? And according to the scriptures, the answer is yes. This is the type of community that Jesus came to inaugurate. This is the type of community that's supposed to be found, or at least the beginnings of it, in Christ's church. But it's not just any community. It's not just community for community's sake. It is community shaped by and ordered toward the good news. Shaped by and ordered towards the gospel. It's gospel community. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the theme of the church as community. And we have to start out by orienting ourselves to the very foundation. of it. We're going to look at the church as a 
growing community and a creative community and all these things. But we've got to start out with the foundation of what is it that makes this community different, and that is the gospel. So I want to look at this uh, text in Luke, and uh, before we do that, let me pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, please speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Here's the first thing that I want you to think about. How does the gospel form community? And the answer is simple. The gospel forms community under a king, under a ruler. The gospel community is that which comes together under King Jesus. Jesus' kingship creates a new possibility for community. Look at verses 14 and 15 in Luke 4. Uh, Jesus bursts onto the scene in Galilee. He has just been tempted in the desert by Satan, and now he comes to make his public proclamation, and he comes in power, the power of the Spirit, the power of God. And so he goes around preaching his message, and he is glorified. He has an authoritative message that lands with people. And in verses 16 and following, Luke zooms in to tell us, what is it that Jesus had to say? Let's get a little bit more of a picture. And What we see is we see Jesus arriving in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And as a a man who's part of that synagogue, when it comes around time, he gets his turn to read. And they hand him the scroll from Isaiah. And so he opens it very deliberately to one important passage. This passage that talks about an anointed king, a Messiah, coming in the power of God to proclaim good news or gospel And when he's done, he rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant, just like I did to Dan. Thank you, Dan. Uh, And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he says, the one who brings the gospel is here, and I am that one. But you've got to understand what a gospel is. See, a gospel is, we, we tend to think of it first and foremost with all the theological freight, and that's okay. But a gospel was a thing in the ancient world, and it was a radical political claim. It was a power claim. So gospel, or euangelion in Greek, refers to the announcement of a victorious king. In the ancient Roman world, a gospel was the announcement of an emperor on his birthday. When a a new child was born and he would be the emperor, we will announce him and his reign. That is coming, and it would be reissued annually on his birthday. It was an announcement that would be carried to new and conquered territory. So there's a new ruler in town. Here's the gospel. Here's the announcement of that. In the Old Testament context, the reason this gospel is good news is because it means that God is going to come and vanquish the forces of evil. So Jesus picks this passage, and he's saying, I am the divinely appointed ruler, the divine rule. I am the anointed king who brings a new kingdom. This is a claim to having power. The gospel is the announcement of a king. Some people might be troubled by this definition. Like, isn't it more than the announcement of a king? Um, Isn't it about personal salvation rather than power? And my retort to this would be, Yes, it's both. It's about power and personal salvation because he is the one who can free us from the things that bind us. And he does that 
through the type of king that he is. When Jesus comes into the world, he frees us from other things that oppress us. He frees us from ourselves. See, the reality is you have to worship someone or something. It's unavoidable. You'll always be under some claim to power. And pretty much any power you are under will ultimately oppress you. And serving these other powers also rips apart community. When you looked at that passage in Micah that we read, it it talks about this beautiful vision of people living in harmony, not just the people of Israel, but all people coming under the rule of Jesus, coming up to Jerusalem. And, And there's peace. Why is there peace? Because the mountain of the Lord's house has been established above all the hills, and all of a sudden, everyone's under the same rule. And then look at the last verse, if you, if you have it, or I'll read it. It says, For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And this brings me back to the theme of community. Why is, why is community something that's so hard and so potentially destructive? Well, it's simple. All the peoples walk each in the name of its God. We all love different things. We all love ourselves and, our, and serve our own desires. Or we love this ideology or that ideology. And there, there is ultimately this friction that comes because our loves are disordered and we're bumping into each other. But the vision of the kingdom is with a king and, a, and people who can all have their order, loves ordered towards one king and live in harmony. And it's not just any king. Because not any king can bring this. It's the type of king he is. Because every other earthly power, every king or power in the world depends on sapping your strength for its own power. But Jesus, the great God with absolute power and authority comes and he doesn't depend on you for anything. His power is an empowering, serving power. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And this is why his power is truly good news. It undoes other powers, the power of death, other claims on our lives, what people think about us. Our own desires even. And so salvation can only come through a new ruler of this sort. The type of community that we need can only come through a new ruler of this sort who will bring us into a place where we can love the same things together and have our loves ordered towards God. See, the gospel, this is how it forms community, that we all come under a new ruler, uh, under King Jesus. And here's, here's the second thing I want to say. Gospel community will be both social and spiritual. This is the type of community. It will be concerned with God and with the human community, the soul and the body. The gospel that Jesus proclaims is both spiritual and social in nature. Dare I even say Jesus has a social gospel? Just look at verse 18, where he's quoting from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. We're led to believe that Jesus' rule will be good news, particularly for the poor, the captives, the blind, and those who are oppressed. In other words, this divine kingship is going to have dramatic social consequences. Those who have been the losers of traditional power dynamics are going to be set on equal footing in the kingdom that he sets up. No longer marginalized, but rather receive special attention and care. 
The normal power dynamics are inverted. The poor will be rich, the blind will see, and the captives will be set free. See, the gospel is all about coming under Jesus' lordship. It's, all, it's spiritual and being justified by him, but it's also all about a change in the way we can relate to other people. It's spiritual and social. One of the tragedies I think of a lot of 20th century Christianity is we fractured the gospel, though, into spiritual and social, into vertical and horizontal, into individualistic and social. So the individualistic gospel proclaimed by many evangelical leaders uh, has tended to emphasize justification by faith in Jesus and the hope of eternal life and to want to stay away even to the point of avoiding certain things that happen in society. The gods are outside of our concern. On the other hand, there's the social gospel movement, which pioneered by people like Walter Rauschenbusch and others in the early, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, takes social reform very seriously, but forgets why it even cares about this in the first place, forgets what justice really is as defined by Jesus because it gets unmoored from the need for faith in him. So the result is comes this orthodox Christianity generally kind of disconnected from anything that's going on on the ground and a concern for justice that becomes progressively disconnected from the gospel itself. And the result, I really think, is that both wings tend to be susceptible to being uh, co-opted by political causes. And I think for us, we have to hold vertical and horizontal together. That's where the church gets its independence. That's where it gets its prophetic edge, is when we hold those things together. It's easy when you hear a sermon um, to criticize someone else who's listening to it, right? So we hear, yeah, those social gospel people, they don't even know about Jesus or we hear, yeah, those people, they, all they care is about, you know, souls getting saved. They don't care about things that go on on the ground. But what we really ought to do is to hear this, and instead of picking out the blind spot in someone else's theology, say, I hope I'm listening, instead of I hope they're listening, to figure out which side of the imbalance are we on as a church, which side of the imbalance are you on personally, and how do you recapture the vision for the gospel as both vertical and horizontal? Are you someone here who when a pastor comes and starts talking about things like justice or social justice, your hackles go up and you're not this again? Oh, no. Did I see a hand raised? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> or, or are you someone, and I think this is a danger too, you, you've, you care a lot about justice and transformation, but... You're kind of, that stuff about actually talking about Jesus with people, that's a bit passe. That's not socially acceptable. We don't really need to do that. Preach Christ and if necessary, use words. And the only way we're going to bear meaningful witness and have renewal and revival is when we hold these two things together. Because evangelism matters. You know, I've, I thought about my own life story just a little bit and 
my mom was, she had me when she was 19. She had my, was pregnant with my sister uh, a couple of years later and was considering having an abortion. She had um, some on and off problems with substance abuse. She was on welfare and her life was a mess. And someone shared Jesus with her and she got saved. This was sort of tail end of Jesus movement or right after. And she became a believer and it actually changed her life. It changed her affections. It changed the things she did. And she was able to gain some stability and relationships and community and become a much more healthy and productive person. And it changed the trajectory of our lives. So evangelism matters. Taking care of people and feeding them and getting them health care matters too. Because St. John says in 1 John, you know, how does the love of God abide in you if, some, if, if you tell someone, like, be blessed, and, and their stomach's empty, and you say, okay, be blessed, and when you have it within you to do something. And it's the real dynamism of the gospel community that holds these things together. We have to recapture. It has to be both spiritual and social, vertical and horizontal, concerned with the soul and the body. Here's the, the last thing I'll tell you, that gospel community will come under attack, that it will be persecuted, and it must fight back, but with the right kind of weapons, the weapon of nonviolent resistance. So we ended our reading at verse 22, um, and it says, all spoke of Jesus, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? It's a little bit weird because it says everyone spoke well of him, and they're marveling at his gracious words. There's this admiration. And yet at the same time, there's some cynicism. Is this not Joseph's son? Don't we, we know this guy. Who does he think he is? And you see this ambiguity here, and the following verses confirm it, that Jesus ends up getting chased out of town, and they try to throw him off a cliff. So verse 22, marveling at his words, verse 29, let's throw him off the cliff. Uh, he both attracts and repels. He attracts with his gracious words, but the gracious words are also a pretty radical critique uh, and a call to repentance, a call to submit to his authority and power and to re repent from unjust practices. And I think it's the same thing with the church as it holds these two things together that it will also find itself both attractive and repellent. Sometimes more attractive and less repellent, thank God. Other times more repellent and less attractive. Because the church has great words of grace to speak, but those words of grace are also always a critique, a calling people away from other allegiances, calling out unjust practices. Um, and in the church should know that attack is ready at any minute. The world's fickle. Today, we might expect to receive applause from something good we do, and tomorrow we might be called bigots and hateful people. And that's just the way it goes. We're following and imitating our Lord, and we have to expect that. And we live in this time, uh, you know, there's talk of culture wars going on, and... Um, our society is changing quite a bit, and, and there are things that make genuine gospel community hard and tenuous, right? 
And there are areas where we're feeling the heat. And as we look to an example, we have to look to Jesus for our example as the church of how we are going to respond to this. And I think I see a couple of things. Number one, he's, he's certainly not a pushover. So he goes right to, he takes, he goes right into to the synagogue and proclaims his lordship. He critiques other claims to power. He argues his case. But at the but also, you'll see, as you look at Jesus' life, he never resorts to actual or physical violence, or rhetorical or actual violence in any way. He never writes anyone off from the outset. He never approaches them merely as an enemy to be vanquished or a battle to be won. In fact, he commands his followers to respond to persecution with blessing and prayer. And he gives the greatest example of this in his own life. And if you look at the history of the church, what is it that the early church, how the church bore witness and grew? By faithful testimony to the point of martyrdom. Look at the apostles. And, and Tertullian, the uh, third century, writes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And to me, what we see in Jesus is what Martin Luther King Jr. talked about in one of his famous sermons, a tough mind and a tender heart. Tough-minded, principled, committed to the gospel and to the, go- the holistic gospel and willing to contend for it. That's the resistance part, the tough mind. But then also tender-hearted, continuing to love even those who are enemies, refusing to strike back even when it might seem foolish. So I have to ask you, if we are a gospel community, do we at least believe in this ethical vision? I mean, at least in theory, do we believe in answering hatred with love? Do we believe that goodness is our answer to evil? Because we need to answer these questions in our hearts, both for our daily lives and also because the gospel community will come under attack. And how do we bear witness? Martureo, martyr, is we overcome evil with good. We answer persecution with blessings and prayer. So this is what we're doing here, folks. We're a community. We're coming together to be a community under our king, to have our loves reordered, that's what we're doing in the liturgy and by coming together is we're trying to grow in this community of having our loves reordered to King Jesus. And as we do so, being able to leaven the city and the neighborhoods we live in with gracious words to speak that are also critiques and calls to repentance. Speak to the soul and the body, the vertical and the horizontal. Are we up to it? Are we up to it? Heavens, no, certainly not in ourselves. But he gives more grace, doesn't he? And that's why we're here, to seek his grace, to live these things out. Please let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Please give us your grace. Fill us with your spirit. Unite us to Christ, that we may participate in him more fully. That we may, uh, as we have our loves reordered, become a community, all oriented around him, that we might uh, have an imagination for your coming kingdom that would lead us to care about seeing parables of that coming kingdom here on earth, all around us, that we might care about both the vertical and the horizontal.
And Lord, teach us to have the kind of strength that you had that has such confidence in goodness that it can respond to evil with love. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.